0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Eileen Hunt Bodding, professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Bodding is a widely published and cited scholar on the thought of Mary Wollin Stonecraft, the 18th century author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. As editor of a two volume collection, Portraits of Stonecraft, published by Bloomsbury Academic, she offers primary sources of criticism literature and representation in portraiture from the early international reception to Wollstonecraft's present global influence. Through well-curated selections, we see Wollenstonecraft's influence in new light, from the iconic portrait painted by John Opie in 1797 to Sarah A. Underwood's essay Herons of Free Thought in 1876 to references by modern feminists including Simone de Beauvoir. Betty Ferdinand, and the artist Judy Chicago, the reader discovers the many implications of Stonecraft's ideas. This two-volume collection is sure to be of interest to anyone curious about Wollandstonecraft's contribution to political philosophy, literature, and feminist thought. Here is my conversation with Eileen Hunt-Bodding. Hello, Eileen. How are you? Very well. Glad to be here. Welcome to the show, and I'm eager to hear your thoughts and the wonderful, about the wonderful collection that you have compiled. But before we get started, uh, let's tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got into this, and why you came to edit this uh, portraits of Woland Stonecraft.:
1: Well, I'm a political theorist at Notre Dame, and I've been studying Wollstonecraft since I was in graduate school. I first encountered Wollstonecraft in college, actually, back at at Bowdoin in the late uh, 1980s, early 1990s, and uh, then went on to Cambridge, where I had the luck of taking a course with Silvana Tomaselli on Wollstonecraft's political thought in the early 90s. And uh, my experience with that course was so positive that it really inspired a lifelong interest in Mary Wollstonecraft's thought and life, and how she has been received over time as a political thinker, as a uh, person. And uh, what I learned very early on in my study of Wollstonecraft is that she's always been a controversial figure. And over time, through my graduate school years, and then my career at Notre Dame, I began to trace out her reception history around the world and uh, learned that Wollstonecraft although always controversial, has always had a rather uh, sustained reception as a result. And this is something that hasn't always been noted in the intellectual histories of her and her uh, legacies. Uh, The dominant myth in the reception of Wollstonecraft has been that uh, after she died in 1797, uh, she Ceased to be read because her husband William Godwin wrote a very controversial biography of her life, uh, Memoirs of the Author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, published in early 1798. And although Godwin's memoirs of Wollstonecraft uh, were controversial, what I argue in Portraits of Wollstonecraft is that um, sometimes uh, um, the best publicity is bad publicity because it only generates more interest uh, in what you stand for. And Wollstonecraft did become. Um, infamous in a way in the late 1790s after she died. She became the uh, nefarious symbol of what women's rights would do to the sexes if we went down that radical path of equality. On the other hand, uh, that uh, bad rap uh, dissolved rather quickly. Um, certainly by the uh, 1820s, 1830s, we start to see a reversal of that view. We start to see Walsham Craft celebrated for her um, prescient and uh, futuristic idea of women's rights, the idea of the equal rights of humankind, regardless of gender or race or class. And, um, and so just a few decades after Godwin published the memoirs, um, uh, we see Wollstonecraft becoming an icon of women's rights around the world, uh, particularly in Europe, North America, and South America. Uh, And so the more that I studied this intellectual history and the more that I realized that the dominant myths about Wollstonecraft were were, um, uh, needed challenge, needed revision, um, I felt motivated uh, to compile all of this research I had done over the years uh, into this two-volume set for Bloomsbury
0: Philosophy. Now, she's best known for the, the text Vindications of the Rights of Woman, but that's not all she wrote. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that text and other things that are really important to understanding her thinking? Uh yes, she's best
1: known for a Vindication of the Rights of Woman, hence Godwin's decision to title the memoirs uh uh um you know memoirs of the author of Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Uh and in fact when, when she died, he, he put that on her grave as well. You know, here lies the author of a Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Uh and in as you as you point out, this is true to the present. And in and, and if any of us uh read Wollstonecraft in college or, or high school even now, uh, we're, we're probably reading from A Vindication of the Rights of Woman*, um, which was published in 1792. Uh, but there were a number of other very important works by Wollstonecraft. Uh, and Portraits of Wollstonecraft, in fact, chronicles her um, early reception in book reviews. Uh, uh, her earliest book reviews were of her earliest works from the late 1780s. Uh, these include uh, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, a treatise for the education of young girls, um, published in 1797 I'm sorry, 1787, uh, original stories from real life, uh, a collection of children's stories that have a pedagogical, uh, moral uh, intention. Uh, and that was published in 1788. Um, there's um, her first novel, um, um, Mary a Fiction, uh, published in 1788. Uh, and um, And, all of these early works by Wollstonecraft were reviewed in leading periodicals in Britain. Interestingly, a lot of them were reviewed in conservative periodicals. And so some of some of her early reviews are 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 are, are, are mixed. Um, but they're mixed in part because she was re- being being read by by conservative male writers. Uh, and what I found so surprising in looking back at those earliest reviews of her of her first published books is that uh, conservative male readers of the time had to show some respect towards Wollstonecraft's arguments for, um, improving the quality of education for, for, for girls and young women. So they, they somewhat begrudgingly would, would, would accept the merits of her arguments, the, the, the reasoned principles of her arguments, and, and concede that women really did need to have a better education in that time period. It would only benefit everyone. Um, and um, and so Wollstonecraft began to build an audience for the arguments that she made famous in A Vindication of the Rights of Woman um, through her early works on female education in the late uh, 1780s. Uh, she's also famous for authoring uh, the first major uh, um, book-length critique of Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France, uh, which had been published on November 1st, 1790. And uh one thing that portraits of wollstonecraft shows is that wollstonecraft's a vindication of the rights of men, her treatise, which was written as a um as a critique of Burke's reflections, was an instant international uh success uh It was received um, not only in all the major London uh periodicals and newspapers, uh, but it was very quickly um, excerpted and and, pub- and published in in a newspaper in um, Kingston Jamaica in early. 1791, in the run up to the Haitian Revolution. Um, so, even before the, uh, the publication of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which made her famous internationally across continental Europe in multiple languages, as well as in North America and in South America, um, uh, the, the, the rights of woman no doubt deserves to be understood as the work that makes Wollstonecraft into an international icon, despite the fact that we should um, understand the rights of woman as this kind of you know earth-shattering text in the history of ideas it really changes Crafts' identity it 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 puts women's rights on the map uh, in the in the history of ideas um before that Wollstonecraft writes a series of important, um, literary and, um, philosophical and political works that, that are gradually making her into a no, a, a known figure, a name, especially in London, but really all over, um, major cities in, in, in Britain, in Britain in particular. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, eventually, um, especially with her vindication of the rights of men she 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 gets that international audience and she she becomes known in the West Indies as well
0: now when i've read her uh and i've read her biography also she um uh, she does her background does not in would not point to her becoming this major international intellectual. Can you talk a little bit about her background and because it's 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 not what you would expect. Can you talk about her upbringing and her life up to mm-hmm. that point? Yes, for sure.
1: Mary Wollstonecraft um, was born in 1759. She was born to a, a, a middle a class family, uh, a family that had once had some wealth. Her grandfather had been quite wealthy due to his involvement in um, um, clothing manufacture. Um, it, but, but her father had squandered much of the family wealth uh, due to alcoholism, Uh, and just uh, poor, poor decision-making. Her father was not a particularly admirable man. And uh, when Wollstonecraft Craft was a a young girl, she would um, throw herself um, between her father and her mother to try and protect her mother from abuse by her father. Um, And there's been a lot of speculation in the biographical scholarship on the nature of that abuse. Was it it sexual abuse? Was it physical abuse? But what we know from Godwin's memoirs, uh, is that um, there was abuse in Craft's family, and that this, this spurred her lifelong interest in the problem of the oppression of women by men, um, and uh, due to their gender and uh, their socially constructed um, status as women, and, and due to their sex, due, due to their biological sex and its, in a, in a, in its, its role in, um, in perpetuating the family uh and so uh Mary Wollstonecraft was born into a, a patriarchal family of the time uh and and she saw the ways in which it was dysfunctional and uh and so uh her first novel mary a fiction is is a is a is is a is an autobiographical novel lightly fictionalized autobiographical novel of ramana clef and she she explores many of these dynamics drawn from her own childhood and family life. Um, the, the, that novel is about a young woman named Mary, who is being forced to marry someone she doesn't love, uh, and, uh, for the sake of the family estate, preserving the family estate. And, uh, in that novel, as well as in, um, a vindication of the rights of woman after it and, and vindication of the rights of men, Wollstonecraft critiques the system of hereditary property of the time that was associated with aristocracy, um, and monarchy, um, as, um, as a class system and a system of government. And, uh, and she, she argues that the idea of hereditary property is inherently pernicious because what it does is it suggests that some people are born into the world more privileged than others, uh, and, and that, that they have a right to be more privileged than others. And Wollstonecraft, um, being born into a troubled family, um, uh knew better. She she knew that um, you know, some people are born into circumstances they they, they don't deserve. <laughs> uh, and uh and and so she went about theorizing uh the ways in which um no one should be um entitled to things simply on the basis of their birth, uh because birth is random. We have no say over how or when we are born. Uh, and in many ways, Wollstonecraft is an intellectual precursor of the thought of John Rawls, the most important political philosopher in the liberal tradition in the 20th century, who made a very similar point in his thought experiment known as the original position. I mean, basically, we, 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 if, we, um, uh, if we take into account that we don't know, you know, what, what social position we're going to be born into in the world, we we will we will think about justice very differently. We'll, we'll think about what would it be like if I was born into a social position of um, radical domestic violence, or what if I was born into a position of radical poverty? Um, how 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 would that change my assessment of how justice should work in society? Those are the kind of questions Wollstonecraft was asking back in the late seventeen eighties uh, and um, in early seventeen nineties, uh, and she argued at the end of the day. Because none of us have any control over how we're, and, you know how we're born and when we're born and what status we're born into, um, society should be structured in a way that that, that, that is essentially egalitarian. Um, we should all have the same basic rights protected by society and law, and that was the core argument of her vindication of the rights of man and vindication of the rights of women.
0: Can you talk a little bit about her education? It was. It's amazing to me that she wrote what she wrote with the kind of educational background that she had. Yes, her education
1: was 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 largely not formal. She she attended a little bit of school in her teenage years when her family um, lived near the um, the Arden family in uh, Yorkshire, I believe. And uh, but beyond that, Mary Wollstonecraft did not have what we would understand as formal schooling. Uh, she mainly was tutored. By uh, ministers, Protestant ministers, uh, whom she met in the various towns her family lived in as she grew up. Uh, And she was obviously very smart. She was very bright. And and people who were educated picked up on this very quickly. And they saw a prodigy in her. There were a series of male ministers who helped her, um, including uh, in the late 1780s, when she began to set up a school in Newington Green for, for young girls and boys. Um uh, she befriended the Berg family and and um and the Bergs uh were um uh, dissenting christians uh, and uh, Mr. Berg was a minister and they were essential in uh the, the in helping Wollstonecraft set up her school and then also inspiring her to write her own uh treatise on on the education of girls' thoughts and the education of daughters. Uh, So, Wollstonecraft's education was um, happenstance, uh, and it was largely done outside of the formal classroom um, with um, um, older male tutors who were Protestant ministers in the dissenting tradition, um, in which she herself came to identify informally. Wollstonecraft um, was raised Anglican. She she never left the Anglican Church. She, in fact, was married in the Anglican Church uh, to, to Godwin, which I find fascinating. Um, given that Godwin was an atheist. And, uh, but she, th- from the late 1780s onward, Wollstonecraft associated herself with, um, with Christian dissenters like Richard Price. Um, and, uh, and I think theologically, uh, gained the most from that tradition in terms of developing her, um, universalistic arguments for the rights of humanity and her univer- u- universalistic theory of justice, um, uh, so uh, but her her education uh, was um, largely by chance uh, and it's remarkable that she developed such a talent for literature, languages, um, philosophy, theology uh, politics, history uh, she was a true polymath and she um, she was largely self-taught now in the uh, I believe in the um, in the beginning of Mary of fiction, she she quotes Rousseau on the possibility of um, genius educating itself. Uh, and I think when she did that, um, and she suggested that the female lead of that novel, Mary was a kind of um, uh, genius or um, uh, prodigy of sorts, an untutored prodigy who learns by experience. Uh, I think she was is suggesting that, you know, that she was too, and that uh And that that there there was this potential for women and other historically marginalized and oppressed people to um rise from their circumstances sometimes through extraordinary um effort uh and um um sometimes with the uh assistance of others sometimes with almost no help from others and uh um exemplified this in her life um and she she wrote about it in her and inner fiction, um, but she didn't believe that it was enough to let a few geniuses rise to the top, uh, uh, as, as 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 Rousseau seemed to think when he wrote his uh, first, discourse, first discourse or discourse on the um, sciences and the arts in um, 1749. Um, uh, Wollstonecraft, unlike Rousseau, didn't think it was enough to let a few gen- natural geniuses rise to the top. Uh, While Cup up that, we had to. Um, if, if you were one of the lucky ones to have this talent, um, it was your obligation to try and help out um, everyone as much as you could. And I think she saw herself as that kind of intellectual. She was um, she was aware of her talents, but she felt this deep moral obligation to help out as many people as possible. And I think that's why she made those universalistic arguments for education. She was saying, "Look." All of us deserve the chance to maximize our potential over the course of our lifetimes. And we need to give basic rights to education to all children, regardless of background, regardless of gender. Um, And that's, to me, what makes her vindication of the rights of women so radical. It ends with that argument for universal primary education um, supplied for free by the state.
0: Um, Can you talk a little bit about the, the nature of her political thought? And how, and her main ideas about women's position in that, in the politics of the day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, her politics.
1: Well, I think Wollstonecraft is, um, in some ways radical for her time period, and then in some ways quite moderate for her time period. Uh, So let me explain that. She's radical for her time period in that, you know, she is in favor of the French revolution. And so that automatically places her on the left, so to speak, you know, (laughs) in, in, in the 1790s. But, you know, lots of intellectuals from Britain were in favor of the French revolution. Um, There was a lot of enthusiasm, you know, um, you can remember um, Wordsworth's enthusiasm, you know, uh, for it, for example uh and um so so she shares that um that that early enthusiasm for the French Revolution that um took hold in in Britain in the early seventeen nineties um but uh she is also moderate uh and it's also with regard to the French Revolution that she could be read as a moderate because she went to she went to France in late. 1792, after she published The Rights of Woman*, and she settled in in Paris during the Reign of Terror. Uh, That's where she met um, her first common-law husband, Goblet Imlay, and had her first daughter, uh, Fanny. Uh, And um, Wollstonecraft lived through the the, the terror, uh, and she continued to support the ideals of the French Revolution, liberty and equality for each and all. Um, She was a political Republican, meaning she endorsed a Republican or representative, Democratic, legislative-based form of government, um, grounded on representing the will of the people, um, and, uh, um, and one that would serve all people, not solely men. Uh, but um, but Wollstonecraft became very critical of the radical um, and bloody stage of the French Revolution, and she associated always with the Girondist Party, which was basically the moderate party um, the, the liberal party, uh, during the French revolution. Uh, and many of the Girondists were guillotined, uh, by Robespierre and, and, uh, and it's, it's remarkable Walsh you know, lived in Paris, uh, during, um, much of the terror, um, was a friend, uh, and supporter of the Girondists, who were enemies of Robespierre. And, um, and, you know, persisted. I mean, stayed in France through 1795. It's amazing. Raising her daughter almost alone, um, surviving one of the coldest winters <laughs> in uh, in recent history. Uh, and um, and she maintained her support of the principles of the French Revolution, despite it all, uh, but developed a more um, moderate, even Burkean Critique of the French Revolution that we see coming out in her 1796 letters, written during a short residence in Sweden or in Denmark. At the very end of that book, uh, she taught, She uses some Burkean language to critique the the way in which the French Revolution unfolded, and she she suggests that um, revolutions are better done um, uh, in a more gradual way, uh, and that um, d- deeper cultural revolutions are 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 often. Um, more dangerous than, um, than straightforward political revolutions. Uh, so I would, I would argue that Wollstonecraft is an interesting mix of the, the radical and the moderate. Um, and that, you know, that even at the end of her, um, writing career, you can see her agreeing with Edmund Burke, who, who she had become famous for, um, for critiquing in her vindication of the rights of people.
0: Would you, uh, call her a radical liberal?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a nice way to put it for sure. I mean, she's a liberal in the sense, if we understand liberal egalitarianism, uh, a la Jean Rawls, I mean, I'd say that it's, it's you know, the the principle of liberty, um, uh, lib- the principle of equal liberty for, for each and all. Um, and, uh, and so uh, everyone must have equal rights and respect one another's rights in order for rights to have any, any meaning uh, politically.
0: So what is her, uh, what is her, what have we gotten from her work about women and about what she says about women's position in society and what is it that she envisions? What is her vision of women's place?
1: Yes. I mean, there's a lot of debate on this. Uh, And I just taught Vindication of the Rights of Women this week and we looked at chapter nine. Uh, where she talks a little bit about what roles women could play in society. She says women could could study politics. She suggests women could be political scientists. Uh, she says, or or politicians. She says women could be uh could be both um should be represented in parliament. She also says women could be representatives in parliament. Um she says that women could be doctors nurses, midwives. Um, She acknowledges women are already midwives and then she pushes for them to be allowed to be doctors. Uh, And she, uh, she, she says women could run their own businesses and should because they need to be economically independent so that they don't have to go into either the formal or informal mode of prostitution um, available to them at the time. Um, And um, she, she, uh so the in short Wollstonecraft thought women can and should be allowed to do anything and, and that education should be set up in a way to open the door to equal opportunities for women to pursue these roles in society when they grow up uh and uh but um she 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 also had strong views about the family and women's role in the family and she sometimes is interpreted as saying that women should be primarily mothers or that women have a duty to be mothers. But I agree with that line in the scholarship that says that Wollstonecraft doesn't think women have a duty to be, um, to be mothers. Um, that would be a very uh, Rousseauian view to ascribe to her. Um, uh, Wollstonecraft, though inspired by many of Rousseau's ideas and the Emile and elsewhere um, takes issue with Rousseau's um, suggestion that women's primary moral duty in life is to uh, raise and nurse and, and care for children. Um, Wollstonecraft thinks that um, women have actually a right to be single. She says that straightforwardly in The Vindication of the Rights of Women. Um, women have a right to live a single life with dignity. Women also have a right to be free from sexual violence. Wollstonecraft makes that clear over and over again in her writings, especially in her novels where women are basically being forced to be married uh, to men that they don't love. Uh, And, um, but, but at the end of the day, Wollstonecraft thinks that if women elect to be married, freely elect to be married, that they should um, uh, be devoted to any children that they raise. But she, she makes it very clear that the period of time in which a mother must be Really focused on caring for a child. And Remember, this is the late 18th century, so they didn't have all the technological innovations we have today to help with things like nursing. Um, but uh, but she thought in infancy, mothers have 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 a duty to to really focus on the raising of the child, because the child is literally physically dependent on them. Um, and she she did agree with Rousseau that it is best for for mothers to nurse their own children which of course today is a controversial view. And it's one way in which Wollstonecraft's thinking on the family may differ um, from contemporary feminists. Um, uh, But um, nonetheless, if if you read the text carefully, Wollstonecraft never says you have an obligation to um, nurse your child beyond infancy.
0: Well, I want to ask you, you talk about um, that there are three myths uh, with Wollstonecraft's legacy. One's that she, she's really talking about white women. It's all about white women uh that she was not she was forgotten in the 19th century you know she was nowhere and that she's actually a quaint product of the enlightenment that's not really relevant today because the enlightenment has come under so much attack and she's just thrown in there with everything else so uh can you talk a little bit about that
1: Sure, sure. Um, I'll I'll start with the first one about, well, you know, the myth that Wollstonecraft is just, just, just about white women. You know, she's just speaking for white women as a white woman Um, and as a white middle-class woman at that. This is a, uh, this was a common line in the scholarship. And I would say, especially the mm, 1980s, early 1990s, around the time I started to study Wollstonecraft and I, I always took issue with it. I, it never sat well with me. It didn't feel like a fair reading of what Wollstonecraft was doing. Because first of all, if you read her Vindication of the Rights of Men, she's, it, it's, a, it's a straightforward anti-slavery text. It makes anti-slavery arguments uh, uh, w- within the first few paragraphs. Um, she uh, expresses um, sympathy um, uh, for the plight of the, the African slave. She compares their condition to that of hell. Uh, and, and she, she, she argues that we, against Burke, <laughs> uh, that we have an obligation to, 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 to free, um, the African slaves from their bondage. Um, so, um, so it's hard for me as a reader of a vindication of the rights of man in its context, um, um, you know, when the abolition cause is ramping up in, in, in Britain, um, in the 1790s after the, um, French Revolution, uh, to, to read Wollstonecraft as somehow just concerned with the condition of women like her. Um, and, uh, um, in the vindication of the rights of women, she continues in this, uh, vein of arguing for the rights of humanity, including, um, uh, the African slaves. And um, she also, in several of her early works from the late 1780s, explicitly argues for the rights um, uh, of Indigenous peoples, especially in the Americas. So I think Wollstonecraft, there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence that Wollstonecraft had a, a universalistic conception of humanity, which encompassed all people regardless of color. Uh, and I think that future scholarship should dig further and, and look more at, um, at, at, at Wollstonecraft through the lens of race and ethnicity. Uh, I think there's a lot more good scholarship to be done to bust this myth that she only spoke for, um, white bourgeois women. And, uh, you, but
0: go ahead, go ahead, please. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, she. one thing they've said is it's been said that she was just forgotten in the 19th century. What I noticed in looking at American uh, uh, feminist thought, proto-feminist thought of the 19th century, is that she is present like you know, the Grimke sisters or, or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But she's rarely mentioned by name. It's like her ideas continue, but her person is sort of, uh, and I think part of that is because she was uh, infamous and controversial, that the people who used her ideas didn't want to be too closely associated with her, even though they wanted to use her ideas. Is that, yeah. I'll qualify it a
1: little bit. Okay, uh, I agreed, I'm just asking. I agree with you up to a point. Uh, what I would say is, is, is this, is that when you look at the history on the micro level and you go through her reception history year by year, decade by decade, country by country, what you see are some interesting patterns. So, for sure, in North America and South America and Europe and Britain, I would say, um, in the, well, no, I'll, I'll actually limit that. I'll say, especially in Britain, North America, and South America, um, in the first uh, 20 years after her death, so going up to about um, 1820, what we see is Wollstonecraft being engaged primarily letters, private documents, journals. Um We see people passing the book down through families, friendship networks, Um, social networks. We see um, it being passed down in churches, especially dissenting Christian churches um, in Britain. We see um, uh, this kind of informal, familial um, friendship network dissemination of her ideas. Uh, And we see a lot of positive uh, reception of Wollstonecraft in this period through those means. We see a lot of people changing hearts and minds by spreading the ideas of Wollstonecraft. Uh, I I cite a letter, I think, by um, George Thatcher in the introduction to parts of Wollstonecraft from, it might have been around 1803 or so. And um, he's writing with a male friend. And he talks about how uh, after he read Wollstonecraft's um, um, uh, letters from Sweden, Norway, and Denmark and other writings, he really uh, changed his mind about about Wollstonecraft, when he first read her *Vindication of the Rights of Woman* and heard about her ideas, he thought she was too radical, you know. And uh, but then, when he read her her, her later, uh, more autobi- more expressly autobiographical writings, um, uh, and, and he probably also read the memoirs by Godwin, um, that helped him to sympathize with Wollstonecraft and, and really uh, understand why she was making the arguments she was, why she was pushing for for reform of girls' education. And in that letter, he confesses that he, he had fallen in love with her. Uh, and so there was this, I, you know, I think those kinds of um, intimate disclosures about people's um, changing hearts and minds on the issue of women's rights, uh, you see those kinds of conversations happening in private, private writing in those first 20 years. Uh, it starts changing. The public reception really starts changing after the... Um, After the Napoleonic era, and it makes sense. Right. So the Napoleonic era in general is just a period of political repression, especially with regard to women, you know, Uh, and that's true on both sides of the Atlantic. So we expect that. Um, Now, one place where Wollstonecraft was always well received, even in the Napoleonic era, it's very interesting, is continental Europe now Europeans just didn't care about the same issues <laughs> that people in Anglo-America cared about. Uh, they weren't as uptight. And in France, actually, and this is one thing the book charts, in, in France, Wollstonecraft has this wonderfully positive reception history. Even as politics becomes more and more repressive and more and more anti-revolutionary, you can still find these wonderful instances of intellectuals um, uh, paying homage to
0: Wollstonecraft
1: precisely because she represented something new and avant-garde.
0: Okay, well i am just I'm saying that because I'm I'm looking for her in everything all these other thinkers since her and that sometimes she's mentioned kind of a side thing but it's like nobody uh, Simone de Beauvoir does the same thing she mentions her but she sort of sets her aside but she does that with everybody so <laughs> that's not unique <laughs> to Wollstonecraft but her right. Her ideas are so, uh, you can see her ideas just being repeated throughout the last 200 years. I mean, I think what I noticed in editing portraits of Wollstonecraft,
1: which is a two volume anthology of all the major writings I could locate from around the world that received Wollstonecraft in some way, shape and form between um, 1787 and the present, uh, what I noticed is that, yes, there is this pattern of, of, of repeating her arguments or rehearsing her arguments or renewing her arguments, um, within the feminist tradition, uh, for sure. And not always referen- referencing her by name. Um, uh, one example of that that I included in the book is by Hannah Mather Crocker, who wrote the first major book-length treatise on women's rights published in 1818 in Boston. Um, and, um, and Hannah Mather Crocker, uh, who was a granddaughter of Cotton Mather, the famous Puritan minister, um, uh, references Wollstonecraft, I believe, twice directly. Um, but she um, but she says something like, um, I don't agree with everything she says. Her ideas aren't completely practical. But then she actually directly lifts quotes and arguments from the rights of women um, and does not cite Wollstonecraft as she does so. So it's clear she may have even had the Rights of Women open on her desk as she's writing observations on the Real Rights of Women. Um, so that kind of pattern does hold, um, and you know, um, I would say that that's a common pattern of reception of Wollstonecraft. Um, and I think it's partly due to the fact that the memoirs made her life story infamous. But remember what I said at the beginning: sometimes bad publicity is the best publicity because it makes people pay attention to you. So Wollstonecraft um, uh, was infamous, especially in the early uh, um, 19th century, especially in her homeland of Britain, because of her controversial um, love life uh, with um, Gilbert Imlay and then with William Godwin. Um, but she, uh, she also simply became a fascinating figure. In, uh, and, um, and there were many biographies written of her and the place where you're going to find the most direct reception of Wollstonecraft, and this is, this is shown, um, especially, actually across the two volumes of purchase of Wollstonecraft is, is in biographies. Um, they were, sometimes there are book length biographies beginning in the late, um, 19th century in Britain, but there are also many shorter biographies, just short essays that were attached to editions of the rights of women. Uh, for example, beginning in um, New York in 1833. Um, and there were, there were a series of short um, nonfiction and fictional responses to her life story that were published in the first decade after her life, mainly in Britain, um, but also in the United States. Uh, so Charles Brockton Brown, who's a, a famous American Gothic novelist and uh, and feminist thinker, um, wrote a dialogue, a philosophical dialogue called Alcuin, I think published in 1798. And that 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 is gen, generally accepted as 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 a, as a text that has a, a, a female philosophical character who's based on the on the person of Mary Wollstonecraft. So you see those styles of of you see you see a variety of styles of representation of her um, allegorical, biographical, philosophical reception without necessarily direct reference, um, and so on. Uh, and um, but the biographical reception of her life. Is something um, that had massive global impact and kept her as a household name, even as people didn't necessarily realize, say, the arguments of Katie Stanton and Lucretia Mott are Wollstonecraftian. Um, maybe people didn't pick up on that until later on in um, the 20th century. Uh, they, they connected the dots much later. But what, made, what kept Wollstonecraft as a household name was her life story.
0: Now you uh collected this you have this collection of reviews, references in literature where she comes up also art the arts was there any when, you know a lot about this this person, and and you've written a lot about her, and did anything surprise you about what you found in putting this collection together? Oh
1: uh, yes, mhm well, yes, yes, one thing that I was really surprised by is that how important the artistic reception is of Wildstonecraft. Uh, I've always enjoyed looking at the portraits of Wollstonecraft painted in her lifetime, uh, and other artistic representations of her over time. But what I didn't realize before I edited edited these volumes is how important the artistic reception was over time. Uh, and, And that in many ways, just like her life story, Kept her alive. The art, based on her life story and based on her person, kept her alive. Uh, and um, there's there's a number of you know great examples of this. One one is that um, there was a play written in the early 1920s by Josephine Peabody, a Boston um, writer, uh, and it was called uh, Portrait of Mrs. W. And it was a uh, a play about um, Mary. Wollstonecraft getting her portrait painted by John Opie in 1797 when she was pregnant with Mary Shelley, um, and she had just been married to William Godwin. So uh, it's a very poignant story because we know um, what Wollstonecraft and Godwin did not. She was going to die very soon after getting that portrait painted, which was, um, on some readings, either a gift from Godwin to Wollstonecraft on the occasion of their marriage or um, a, a gift from Wollstonecraft to Godwin on the occasion of their marriage. Um, and um, Opie, uh, interestingly, um, met his future wife due to Wollstonecraft, um, Amelia Opie, and also Opie may have had a, um, a, a romantic attachment to Wollstonecraft, which was never realized. So this uh, this play is about this really interesting nexus of relationships between the Opie's um, and the Godwins, uh, and then also the impact of Wollstonecraft's um, Death on her daughter um, Mary Shelley, and so in the play, she has um, the ghost of Mary Wollstonecraft come back and um, kind of haunt Mary Shelley, not not in a sinister way, but in a in a kind of in a, in a melancholic and um, poignant way. Uh, so this play is, as far as I know, the first major play written about Wollstonecraft's life. There there, there may have been others, you know, but this is the first major one. Um, it it didn't get a lot of play in its time. But um, uh, it inspired the work of Lorraine Hansberry, who is one of the most important African-American feminist playwrights. Uh, and uh, um, after Raising in the Sun became a huge hit on Broadway in the late 50s, Lorraine Hansberry, who was very young at that time, early 30s, um, she began to plan to write a play about Mary Wollstonecraft. And she she read um, uh, portrait of Mrs. W by, um, Josephine Peabody as part of her research. She also read, um, a, a lot of the sources I include in portraits of Wollstonecraft. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry was an excellent researcher. She, she really knew the history of the reception of Wollstonecraft when she was writing her, her play about her. But tragically, um, Hansberry came down with pancreatic cancer and um, died before she could finish her, her play about Mary Wollstonecraft. And um, at the New York Public Library, there remains just a fragment of the play, um, which I was able to read right before the pandemic set in. Uh, and um, the play is really interesting because she intended it to be historical. She begins with with our earliest known Facts about Wollstonecraft, which are from her teenage years, from her childhood. And, and the opening scene is about her conflicted relationship with her brother. Uh, mm. So um, so that was a big surprise. A couple of big surprises there. One is how important the art history of Wollstonecraft is for understanding her um, global and multicultural reception. Two, how important the art was for inspiring other art forms like theater, Right, beginning with Peabody and then extending to Lorraine Hansberry. And then three, how this, even just this particular train of reception shows us the ways Wollstonecraft was speaking to women beyond, you know, the white middle class. Uh, And and Lorraine Hansberry's very emotional and intellectual connection to Wollstonecraft at the peak of her career, I think speaks volumes to the ways that Wollstonecraft continues uh, to be. As Virginia Woolf put it, alive and active even now.
0: Do you think that there is a? This is ai am kind of hesitating here. There is there a, a revival of interest in Walden Stonecraft, and um. And what is what is what are, what are the implications of her thought for feminist political theory? Okay, wonderful. Great questions. Uh, first, is
1: there a revival? For sure, there's a revival going on. Uh, and I ended the book looking at the big uh, debate over the new Wallstonecraft statue or statue for Wallstone Craft. that was put up in London uh, last uh, November. and um and uh, there's uh, some great work being done, some great activism being done uh by B. Rowlett and the Wollstonecraft Society in London, drawing attention to um the both the historic Wollstonecraft and her ongoing philosophical and practical legacies for feminism today. Uh, and so um I uh was so happy to be able to include um a final chapter on on the Statue for Wollstonecraft. Uh, because I think that statue, although it was a lightning rod for much controversy almost a year ago now, um, I think what it's done is, is show how, um, how many readings of Wollstonecraft there can be at any given time, and that even feminism continues to debate her meanings, uh, and that's a healthy thing, um, even, even if the conflict is hard to process at the time, I think a year, a year later after that, debate about the statue for Wollstonecraft by Maggie Hambling. Um, I think I can say that, you know, Wollstonecraft is alive and active, as Wolf put it, because uh, we continue to um, ask questions about what her life and work means to us today. Um, on your second question, what are Wollstonecraft's legacies for political philosophy in particular? Um, I think Wollstonecraft's legacies for political philosophy may be maybe easier to pin down uh, when we think about Wollstonecraft's political legacies um, or legacies for feminism in a practical activist sense. I think that um, Wollstonecraft's you know, somewhat amorphous figure um, who's been interpreted in multiple ways over time. I mean, my, the book Portrait of Wollstonecraft shows how she's resonated with everyone from Emma Goldman to Ruth Benedict and so on, Sen and so on. Uh, um but when we think about waftercast legacies for political philosophy I, you know i think that she does fit what you what you described earlier a kind of radical liberalism uh you know <laughs> you know she's 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 a liberal egalitarian she believes in equal rights above all um that equal rights should structure all dimensions of society and government um and there's a real the radical piece is the progressive piece this forward looking progressive piece to how she sees reform as transforming society, um, so not not revolutionary, revolution, revolutionizing society in a dangerous way. Um, I think she's a, a bit of a Burkean there, um, but transforming society in in a in a way that is um, um, ethical and intergenerational and caring for the well-being of the other, no matter who that other is.
0: Well, my, uh, you know, my problem often with the critique of Stonecraft is that when people are critiquing her, they take her out of her context, and they expect things from her that would have not been possible at, you know, (laughs) in her moment in time, and we expect her to transcend her society and transcend her uh, situation, and nobody can do that. We don't do it either. (laughs) So... Uh, what can you tell me? What the what the uh, can you name some partic- uh, particular controversies regarding her legacy that are going on right now? Are there some active arguments happening? Hmm.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, we. Yes, I think so. I think there's a, there's a lot of debate about about Wollstonecraft, what what she stands for. I mean, that the the debate over Maggie Hambling's statue for Wollstonecraft is a good example. I mean, a lot of people wanted to say. That the statue um, uh disrespected Wollstonecraft because it represented uh, a naked woman uh at the at the top of the of the of the abstract um sculpture and uh and a lot of critics a lot of feminist critics said that this was uh disrespectful to Wollstonecraft, disrespectful to women objectifying of women um over sexualizing of women uh and there are a number of responses to that critique. Uh, one is that the statue is an abstraction. It's not of Wollstonecraft, it's for Wollstonecraft. Um, and then secondly, that the, uh, the statue, um, the statuette, um, is, is not, uh, meant to represent, um, you know, an idealized female body, um, so much as the idea of an every woman, um, as the Rowlett put it in her comments to the press almost a year ago uh, and uh, given that Wollstonecraft believed in the rights of humanity and included the rights of women as essential to the realization of the rights of humanity uh, I think the the statue um, on that reading suggests the idea that um, we we ought to elevate or uphold women's rights as essential to the future of not only womankind but but human, humanity in general um, well, and so so you know so I think there's this ongoing debate, in the feminist response to Wollstonecraft, which is, is is Wollstonecraft um, the the kind of uh, the source of the feminist critique of of, um, patriarchal culture and the way that objectifies and over-sexualizes women? Is that her primary contribution? And certainly that's a big strand of a vindication of the rights of women. On the other side, we have this, you know, as you put it so nicely, a radical liberal reading of Wollstonecraft, which puts human rights at the core of everything she's doing. Uh, and so I think that th- th- those, those two readings of Wollstonecraft continue to kind of um, butt heads. And, and, um, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that people are getting at two major themes of her vindication of the rights of women, um, which may sometimes stand in tension. Um, but I think that, that identifies a philosophical problem for feminism to continue to dwell on and ponder.
0: Well, there's, you know, um, she's been accused of, you know, and she does this. I mean, she, she doesn't really portray women as victims. She, ba- she does talk about women's complicity in this system, this patriarchal system, which other people have since then also pointed out, uh, so she, uh, some people have uh, accused her of, you know, uh, looking down on women and, uh, you know. So what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: Wollstonecraft as misogynist. This is another <laughs> yeah. standing argument in the scholarship uh, that emerged around the time I first studied Wollstonecraft in college and um, graduate school. I, I've never found this argument persuasive. I mean, I think Wollstonecraft is pretty even handed in her criticisms of Everybody, <laughs> meaning Waltercraft is just very critical, uh, and but you know she's a philosopher. She's she's you know she's she's a very practical philosopher, uh, and so you would expect her to be critical. I think this is one way in which Waltercraft is um, in the vein of what we understand as critical critical theory, and in, in the present, uh, you know she she understands her job as a political critic to to show the hypocrisies and the. Uh, the problems and in, in literally every aspect of society and all the people who live in it. Uh, she was also an 18th century wit. And, and so in the, in the tradition of Jonathan Swift, I mean, there was, there was nobody she didn't make fun of. Uh, and, um, and so, so women, women got, got poked fun of as, and, 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 criticized as much as, as much as men. Uh, and, and I think that actually is reflective of her, of her commitment to um, a universalist exception of, of the human being. Um, and so no, no one should be accepted. Nobody should be, um, uh, nobody should be given special status, uh, in some ways where we're, we're, we're all on this level playing field. Uh, and, um, and that means that we're all subject to criticism.
0: So, uh, what, do you, uh, what remains a mystery about her life or her thought? Are there riddles or things that people are still can't figure out what happened and what she was trying to say or? Mm-hmm. Yes, the ongoing riddles in
1: Wollstonecraft's thought.
0: Um you know I think that
1: one, one I've been working on is Washington's relationship to uh republicanism, liberalism and democracy. Uh so uh, what did she stand for politically? Well, she certainly was in this kind of late 18th century republican tradition um that uh the French revolutionaries um supported the the, the establishment of of representative, legislative-based um, government that um, incorporated a, a, you know, a variety of forms of political power in a so-called mixed regime uh, and, uh, and sought to um, uh, uh, prevent tyranny from taking over society um, in government by putting power primarily in the hands of the representatives of the people in the legislature. So she was an 18th century Republican, uh, but she also seems to anticipate ideas we would associate with liberalism. Um, and that's really that idea of equal, equal rights, a strong view of equal rights, um, and with, with equal liberties, uh, being the key. Uh, and, um, so, um, I have looked at Wollstonecraft through the lens of the idea of, of Liberalism and um, and she she herself uses concepts of of liberal and liberality quite a bit uh, in her writings, especially her writings on the French Revolution. So I, I don't think it's a stretch to think of Waltoncraft as part of this post revolutionary trend um, to rethink republicanism in more liberal terms. And then that leaves us with the question: What is her relationship to modern democracy? And uh, and I think that she. Uh, can be understood as uh, an early theorist of modern um liberal democracy um and uh, and especially if we understand modern liberal democracy is grounded on um, a written constitution. She was a supporter of both the American Revolution and the french revolution uh, um and she um, she um, uh, supported the idea that modern democracies in order to be legitimate, uh, to be grounded on written documents that, 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 that profess or promulgate, um, the rights, uh, the equal rights of people, uh, to equal liberties under the law. And, uh, so I read her also as, um, a philosophical, um, forerunner of modern theories of constitutional democracy. Um, and in uh, the fact that Wollstonecraft aimed to include everyone in the body of the people, you know, unlike Rousseau, she didn't reserve the people for the male citizenry. Uh, she she wanted to understand the people as including everyone, including children, uh, which is a radical idea. She didn't give children the full slate of rights as adults, but she gave children rights, including a right to a free public education. And so she, she um, in some ways... Participates the work of uh, political theorist um, Elizabeth Cohen, who's argued that children are semi-citizens. So children are um, are not uh, fully, for better or for worse, children are not fully citizens. Um, they don't have the full slate of rights as adults. But um, Mary Wollstonecraft-like uh, Cohen today has has argued that that children um, do and should have rights um, protected by the state, and um, and those rights ought to be expanded. In many cases, and so uh, so she she can be seen as someone who pushes us toward a very expansive conception of the people as the grounding of modern democracy, and uh, that people includes women, children, uh, people of color, people of all economic backgrounds, and so on.
0: My uh my riddle <laughs> for her is wondering she uh, she puts a lot of emphasis on reason, but she also is not doesn't want to discount feelings. And there's this tension there between reason and sensibilities. And uh, one of the problems that she had with the dissenting community of Richard Price was that they were all, they're very much in their heads and really emphasized reason. And she resisted that. Uh, And then, you know, she falls madly in love. I mean, just like, it's just uh, with a, Imlay and then, uh, not Godwin as much, I think. Imlay was probably her, her most torrent affair. Um, and it seems like there's this tension in her life over what she have priority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I think there's
1: a, there's a way in which Wollstonecraft's entire writing career is about this tension between reason, reason and passion, uh, she never denies the importance of the passions to our lives. She, she like Rousseau, is seeking to um, have some sort of balance between reason and passion. Um, and uh, but like Rousseau, she she struggled with that um, as a human being and uh, often failed to realize her ideal. Um, but she, um, uh, I think that in many ways, um, doing this edited set for Bloomsbury made me realize how interesting Wollstonecraft's life is when you treat it as a text or story unto itself. Um, so instead of reading Wollstonecraft's life as somehow a foil to her philosophy, which I think has been a a trend in the scholarship to see somehow there's a contradiction between her life choices and what she argued. Um, I Instead of that model of reading, um, the life alongside the works, I, I've come to see the value of simply reading her life as a text, as, as a story that she helped to write by writing works that were largely autobiographical and based on her experience of oppression as a woman and as an observer of women's oppression. And that Wollstonecraft crafted a, a story about herself, which then continued to resonate with other people, beginning with her husband, William Godwin who published the first major biography of her um, and then all the other mimetic iterations of her life story that we get throughout the 19th and 20th and early 21st centuries. Um, and so I've, I've started to just see her life itself as a text, and as a kind of philosophical text. And and I think that's the way she was read by many into feminist intellectuals, including Emma Goldman and Ruth Benedict and Lorraine Hansberry. They look back to her, um, her life as a, as a model or allegory or the struggles and the conflicts and the challenges that all women face. So she becomes that every woman that is represented in the statue by Maggie Hamblin.
0: Yeah, because I uh, I just saw that she, you know, the way she described her ideal of what marriage is—inter equality and mutuality. You know, sort of a reasonable uh, relationship that is not driven by mad passion, and then. She, she, I mean, she describes it very sort of, yeah, that's what she describes. And then she has these torrent affair and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What happened to all this? Uh,
1: well, you know, you know it, one thing to remember is that, you know, Wollstonecraft, you know, as far as we know, Wollstonecraft had no romantic relationships prior to her relationship with Imlay. That was a big moment in her life. Uh, and so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. And so, you know, I, I, to me, uh, the more that I've read all, I mean, uh, now I feel like I've read every single biography ever written of Mary Wollstonecraft. The more, the more biographies I've read of her, the more I start to see that change in her thought that happens after she moves to Paris and she, um, becomes lovers with Imlay. There is a change in Wollstonecraft, but the more I, I just see that as, um, uh, part of the, um, the real life of, of, of Mary Wollstonecraft, and that in, in, in we, we, we shouldn't expect the thought to remain static somehow across time. It makes sense that she as a living, breathing human being would change her ideas and arguments in response to her life experiences. Um, and this has actually become a, a tenet of feminism. You know feminist thought is in large part across time and culture about lived experiences of women being the basis for argumentation and ideas about liberating women from conditions of oppression. And so, I mean, and so in other words, Waltoncraft lived it uh, and 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 we tend to appreciate feminist thinkers who inform their writing with their with their life experiences,
0: yeah, because there's there's still a tension within feminism between. What it aspires to in terms of uh, uh, relationship between men and women, and the actual experience of, of, of that relationship, and sometimes there's huge contradictions, uh, and I've I've seen it live, you know, in action, uh, where a woman's ideas of what she thinks she wants or thinks is the right thing to have control, completely contradicts uh, what she's actually living out. And I think we're still dealing with that. How do we reconcile our ideals with our experience? But uh, I have one final question. And the question is, uh, for the listener, what is the one thing you want people to know about Will and Stonecraft? The one thing. The one thing.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: Um, I would say that
1: Will is funny. <laughs> She's She's a she's a she's a genuinely funny writer. I I've been teaching Wollstonecraft at Notre Dame for twenty years I've now. I've missed that. And, I'm so yeah. glad you said yeah. that because I've yeah. missed that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, when you when you teach Wollstonecraft to a group of students who's never encountered her before, the first thing they'll tell you is that that woman is funny. Uh, she's got so many jokes, she's so ironic, she's so satirical. Uh and um and in I really came to a I used to take maybe Wollstonecraft a little too seriously. Back in the 1990s, when I started teaching at Notre Dame in 2001, all of a sudden I saw her completely differently. And I started to read her more as an 18th century wit um, in the vein of Jonathan Swift. And I think that, that's a better way to see Wollstonecraft. And that makes makes her feel more up to date, too, because a lot of contemporary feminism is really quite snarky. And so I think that Wollstonecraft's in that tradition of snark.
0: Okay. Uh, Eileen, you have been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host Lillian Barger.